Before we get started, why don't we go ahead and pray again and just again ask God to bless our time in His Word. Lord God, again, we thank You so much just for all that You do in our lives. And as has been mentioned by Pastor John, again, we pray for those families who last night and early this morning who were suffering over the loss of friends and family members. We pray for Your comfort upon them, Lord God. And we also just pray, Lord, for understanding and compassion in this crazy world, Lord God, as is mentioned by Dana as well, Lord, that just sometimes we don't understand what's going on, but we know that you have a plan. And even in today's word, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to understand that plan, to trust that plan, Lord God, even in the midst of a chaotic world. Help us to trust you even more and to hold on to you even more, for your plan is sure and true. And so... Again, we pray for those families that they too would understand that, Lord God, and find comfort in that. And we pray for our congregation as well. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, open up your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 27. As I said, as we look at a message entitled, The Lord's Divine Plan. So this chapter, chapter 27, is really a conclusion of chapters 24 through 27, where Isaiah has been declaring what is in store for God's people. And it's really a, a declaration of hope that he has been encouraging God's people, as I mentioned in my prayer, to hold on and to trust, because in the end, as we've known over the past few weeks, we've looked at some of the end times events that are going to take place, that you can trust God in the midst of such turbulence. And he's also declaring in these chapters and trying to persuade the people of God or people in general to turn to God in the midst of this, that trusting in all, the, all these other things is futile. And for those who are maybe even fallen away from the Lord, it's, a, it's been messages of encouraging people to return to the Lord. And it's also been, in another way, declaring, the, and declaring this hope of the future of God's plan a warning to those who continue to turn away from God and to reject God that the Lord will exact justice on those who refuse to trust Him. And so in this last chapter here, in chapter 27, Isaiah is going to continue with this theme, with this theme excuse me, by concluding with the Lord's divine plan in four areas. And I want to point those out real quick, that the Lord's divine plan is this. There's one we're going to look at, the planned destruction of Satan. So that's the first thing that we're going to look at this morning. And they're not in any chronological order. Isaiah is just declaring these things. So the planned destruction of Satan, he's going to talk about the plan of the Lord's salvation. Then he's going to mention the plan of his discipline, how the Lord disciplines. And then finally, the plan of his victorious salvation it, through his return. And we'll look at those four things this morning. So that's a quick little outline as we go forward. All right. So let's begin by reading. Let's see. Let's read through it. There's 13 verses, and we'll come back and discuss these in little sections in relation to those four things. So Isaiah, again, concluding what he's been talking about over the past four chapters. And he says this, In that day... The Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. 
and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it, and I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them, and I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Like a striking of him who has struck them, he has, he has struck them. Or like the slaughter of a slain, have they been slain? You contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away with his fierce wind, and he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the fruit of the pardon of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense altars will not stand. For the fortified city is isolated, the homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. In that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So again, this is Isaiah's conclusion to the prophecies that he's been explaining to Israel what is coming, what is taking place. And in the process of looking at that, as I mentioned, he wants them to be encouraged and to be warned. And so let's go back and look at those four things that I mentioned at the very beginning of the Lord's divine plan, because it is the Lord's divine plan to ultimately destroy all evil that is really just personalized in the being of Satan himself. And I can't help but again mention what's happened over through the night. If you don't know, there was a gunman that entered, I think, a couple of places in different states and just shot people and they were killed. And nothing says evil like that, just senseless murder. And you look at those things and you could be wondering, and I'm sure people do, like, where is God? How could God allow such things to happen? And it looks like evil is triumphing in our world. But Isaiah is here, and Scripture is here to tell us that ultimately evil will be defeated. And that's what we see in verse 1. So let's look at that again, just verse 1. So Isaiah again saying, in that day, and as we've been studying, in that day, he's talking about that the end of the current age. So at the end of all human history, he's saying that something is going to happen. And he says this, in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with this fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So who's Leviathan? So the name Leviathan is mentioned a few times in scriptures, and some people believe it's just mentioning a big sea creature of some sort. You know, sometimes it can refer to just a hippopotamus or to a crocodile. But there's also a, an ancient belief that Leviathan is a mythical character 
in ancient times representing or symbolizing evil and basically an immense power in the sea, something to be feared. Kind of like comparing him to Jaws. You know, don't go out there. Jaws is out there. You know, if you've seen Jaws and like I did when I was little and you were afraid to even go in the deep end of the pool, you were worried that there was this crazy, monstrous thing out there just waiting for you. And so in ancient times, Leviathan was thought of like that, this sea monster that was uncontrollable, but he embodied all of evil, and he symbolized everything that was evil. And so Isaiah is playing on this myth to help Israel visualize how evil is going to ultimately be destroyed in the end. And so here he ties some things that are associated with Satan with Leviathan. Look at the verse again. Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, he describes him as, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. That's how the Lord will destroy him. But again, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And the sea in Scripture sometimes can be associated with chaos or the world or all of evil. That's why in the book of Revelation, when it says there is no more sea, it's not literally that there's no more ocean, that there's no more evil. There's no more moral evil. It is all destroyed. And so who is the great serpent and dragon who's over all of evil? That's obviously Satan. So again, this imagery again helps Israel understand the gravity and immensity of the victory of God because the Lord is ultimately going to destroy Satan. Now, this is prophesied in a few places, and let's just look at one of them in the book of Genesis. Look at chapter 3, verses 15 through 14. You remember in the fall, at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, and so after the fall of Adam and Eve, God pronounced judgment on the serpent. And he said this, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, And more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat the days of your life, or all the days of your life. And then he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and her seed. Right? He's saying, and her, between you and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So it was a description of Satan ultimately crushing the serpent, and only bruising Jesus, but ultimately crushing Satan. So this is prophesied from the very beginning. So it's not something new when Isaiah mentions it. So in, and you may be thinking, well, how is God going to destroy Satan? Again, as we look at all this evil, because we even talk about Satan already being defeated. We sing about it. How has that happened? Jesus himself also mentions that Satan was defeated And this was inaugurated in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Let's look at a few verses that just mention that. Turn with me to John chapter 12, verse 31. John 12, 31. And so here's an example of where Jesus saying that Satan has already been defeated in some sense. And he says this. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So this is at Jesus' death. He says when he dies, he's going to cast out Satan in some sense. He's going to defeat him in a certain sense. This is even expanded even more if you turn to Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse, Colossians 2 verse 14, I'm sorry. In Colossians chapter 2, this is 
I really like this verse because it spells out so much for us about how Satan is defeated. So in Colossians chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 15 as the Apostle Paul is explaining this to the church in Corinth. And he says this about Jesus' death. Having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. When he, and look at this. And when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He's talking about Satan. He triumphed over Satan at the cross. And all your sins and all your debt that was to be paid to God had been canceled out on the cross. And this is one of the ways that Jesus defeated Satan even now. We experience that. Every time somebody is saved, God defeats Satan. So in one sense, Satan was defeated now, but the ultimate sense, what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 27, has yet to be realized. And if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, this is where it will be finally realized or fully realized and consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Revelation, the Apostle John describes it this way. Look at verse 7. So starting in verse 7, now don't get hung up on a lot of the other wording here and thinking, oh, what's Gog and Magog? Let's just focus on the defeat of Satan. We'll save that for another sermon. So Revelation 20, verse 7, it says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So in some sense, Satan is in prison now or bound in some sense. And it says this, Uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the sea, and they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And then this is the description. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is the final consummation where Satan is totally defeated and will never ever again be released or allowed to have any authority on this earth. And so this is what Isaiah is talking about here. When the great Leviathan, these, all the embodiment of evil is cast out, defeated again, with the fierce and great and mighty sword. So that's what he's talking about in verse 1. So God's plan is to ultimately defeat Satan. Right now he is bound in a certain sense and is allowed to roam with limited power. And we see it, it looks evil. We see it in our, our world all the time. But there is a time where that will no longer exist. And so Isaiah is telling Israel this, and he's telling us this as well, that that is our future, that evil will no longer exist. So let's look at the next few verses. And the next part of God's divine plan is the salvation of God's people. And look at what he says. He says, again, in that day. So when in that day here in chapter 27 is usually in reference to the final day. So once Satan is defeated, what is it going to be like? Look at what he says. He says, in that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. So it's a celebration. God's again, like in chapter 26, asking the people to sing. He says, I am the Lord. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I will guard it night and day. 
I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them and I would burn them completely. So who is this vineyard that God is talking about? Well, in context, Isaiah is mentioning God's people, and specifically when Isaiah talks about a vineyard throughout Isaiah, he usually refers to Israel. In chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Israel is the vineyard. And so this is what Isaiah envisions. He's speaking to Israel. He's saying, you're the vineyard that God is going to protect. And so, but we know in the New Testament, it also is expanded to include Gentile believers. So turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And let's look at verses 11 through 13. Because God's people includes someone else, and it's you and me. And look at what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, verse 11. He says, I say then that they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So he's talking about Israel, the Jewish nation. He's telling his audience that hey, the Jewish nation has fallen, right? But they're not forsaken. And because, of their, because they've fallen, God's plan was to include the Gentile church so that he might make Israel jealous. And look at verse 12. He says, Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, insomuch then I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. So he's talking to the Gentiles, saying you guys have been included in the promises, which we'll read about in a moment, but don't get, you know, don't, Use that to kind of like to think you're better than the Jews. Matter of fact, go down to verse 17 now. And he says this, But if some of the branches were broken off in reference to Israel, like the vineyard, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So the picture is this, that Israel is this vineyard, and their branches have been broken off because of their sin, which we'll see in a few moments back in Isaiah and he's saying, you who were a wild branch, you've been grafted into these same promises. So this vineyard not only includes the nation Israel or believing Israel, but it will also include believing Gentiles. So the vineyard is the, the all believers through all time. But Isaiah can only envision Israel at this time. He doesn't know of all the promises in the future that we see in the New Testament. So the salvation of God's people is his divine plan. Now let's go back to our text in Isaiah chapter 27. So the vineyard, again, are all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. And the vine dresser that is spoken of here is the Lord. And look how God is described. He says, I, the Lord, am its keeper, and I water it every moment. So the vine dresser who takes care of the vine is the Lord God, and he provides water every moment. And again, this is a picture of all eternity because it's in that day what God is going to do. God's going to provide water every moment for all eternity. What does that mean? That means in the final day, we will never be without refreshment. Water is, a, is refreshing, right? When you're thirsty, and we can all relate to it nowadays in this heat this summer. But think how refreshing it is when you drink water. 
So he's saying, I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to water it always. You're never going to be without refreshment. You will no longer thirst again in the presence of God. We will be completely satisfied. Think of that, never desiring anything, to always be refreshed and filled. That is the future of God's people. So not only is he its keeper and watering it every moment, what else does he say in verse 3? So that no one will damage it, I will guard it night and day. Another beautiful picture of the Lord, that he is our protector. He guards his people night and day. And he's talking again about all eternity. God's going to protect us. No longer will there be anything to fear. For the Lord will be with us always. You can sleep at night without any fear. You can be you're walking around at the daytime without anything to fear because God is there to protect us for all eternity. Again, he says, I guard it night and day. And continuing on, describing this vine dresser of the vineyard in verse 4, he says, I have no wrath. In the future, God's wrath is, it is appeased now, but it will be finally experienced in, throughout all eternity, God will be no longer, will have no wrath. There'll be no enmity between man and God because God will be with his people. Right? He is pleased because of what Christ has done now, but it'll be fully consummated in that final day. And then I, Isaiah exaggerates this as if he's speaking for God in, in the rest of that verse. He says in verse 4, Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle? then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. He's saying, oh, if somebody could come and try to disrupt what I have, I would destroy them. Like nobody's going to touch my people. Oh, just let them try is what he's saying. But in eternity, there's nobody to try. But he wants them to know that if they did, he would destroy them. That nothing will hurt God's people in that day throughout all eternity. Going on in verses 5 through 6, he's talking about here now, he's kind of offering salvation to the people that he's talking about in verse 5, those people who would try to do something. He says, or instead of doing that, let them rely on my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So instead of someone being God's enemies, like, now Isaiah is saying, hey, let them make peace with God. Because this is the future. It's futile to come against God's people. It's futile to come against God. So let them make peace with God. This is God's plan of salvation for his people. And then he goes to verse, look at verse 6. as He talks about the future of Israel. And we just read about this in Romans. Look at what he says. He says, in the days to come, so even though he's talking about the future... Now he goes back a little bit to his, his audience and says, In the days to come, this is what's going to happen. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. This is a picture of what God is going to do with the nation of Israel. Because in the nation of Israel, he's going to bring about Messiah. And it is Messiah that will come about and spread the gospel through his people to the entire world. So this is the plan and the future of the nation of Israel. And we are now living in that plan because God's word has gone out to all people. And we've been grafted in, as Romans 11 has said, for all people who believe they will be grafted in. So this is his plan through the nation Israel. 
So let's look at verses 7 through 11 now and look at the third part of God's plan. Because in God's plan, there is also discipline, right? Just like any good parent or any, there is discipline. You don't just let your children run around freely and do what they want. There must be discipline. And then God says this as well in his divine plan. Look at what he says in verses 7. This will be in verses 7 through 11, but just let me read the first part. He says that like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? So he's talking about and is striking against the evil people that have come against Israel. Has he struck his own people in the same way? Like God disciplines his people differently than he does those who come against his people. That's what verse 7 is saying. And so in verse 7, he's telling them, Israel, I'm not going to discipline you like those who come up against you. I'm going to discipline you different. I discipline you so that you will learn. Right? I don't discipline you out of wrath and frustration. Right? And this is what Isaiah has been saying throughout the entire book of Isaiah. is like, Israel, listen to God. He's going to discipline you so that you return and so that you come back. But if you don't listen, then you will be judged. And so this is what he says. Look at verse 8. You contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away. And this is talking about God and what he does with Israel. He drives them away with his fierce wind. He expelled them on that day of the east wind. So he's going to expel Israel. And if you know at this time, Babylon was going to come eventually and take away Israel for 70 years into, into captivity. And so this is what he's describing. This is the future of the nation Israel. But there's a purpose for it. Look at verse 9. He says, Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of their pardon of sin. He's talking about that they're going to learn. They're going to be disciplined, and they're going to learn. They're going to repent. And how do you know that they're going to repent? Well, look at the rest of verse 9. He says, This is the full price of their pardoning of sin, and this is the result of it. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense altars will not stand. So it's a picture of Israel getting rid of their gods, getting rid of all their altars. They're no longer going to bow down to the ashram or incense. They're not going to pray to foreign gods anymore. They're going to break them. Think of that. When you became a believer, you gave up all those things that you used to do. You used to worship. Why? Because of what God has done for you, and you worship the true God. And so Israel's going to break down the altars, tear down the ashram and the incense poles, or the incense altars, because they have learned the discipline of the Lord. And so they actually learn, and they repent, and they return. But it's not so for all people. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 and 11 talk about those who don't learn from discipline. And he says this, For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. So it's a picture of a forsaken town, a forsaken city. It's just overgrown, and cattle are grazing there. But there's not even grass to graze on. They're just feeding on branches because it's so forsaken. And this is what happens to those who don't listen to the Lord. They will be judged. They don't learn their lesson and they're forsaken. Look at verse 11. It talks about this. It says, When the limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not people of discernment. Therefore their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. So unlike those who 
burnt or tore down their altars and their ashram and their incense. This is a picture of people not having discernment. They continue to stay in that place despite God's judgment upon them. And if you remember from last week in chapter 26, verse 10, he says this. I want to read this to you. He says, Through the, it says Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. So even when the wicked is disciplined, they don't realize that God's disciplining. And they continue to do the same thing. So you see the picture of those who are disciplined and learn righteousness and those who are disciplined and don't. They just stay in there and so God forsakes them. He has no compassion on them and he's not gracious to them because they don't repent and they do not learn. So God's plan is one also of discipline. One, to get you to return to the Lord and two, to issue judgment on those people who refuse to repent. And so again, Isaiah is warning Israel of this thing. He's like, hey, you guys, need to, you guys need to pay attention. What God is going to do, here's God's plan. It's laid out for you, and you have a choice. And the same is true for us as a church. You come here every Sunday, hear God's word, and you have a decision usually to make on, am I going to follow the Lord, or am I not going to follow? Or am I going to reject the word of God, or am I going to be obedient to the word of God? I think God gives us the freedom to choose in those areas of our life. And so it's a lesson to us as well. And so let's look at the last point here. The last part of God's divine plan is one of the greatest ones, and it's the Lord's second coming. In verses 12 through 13, this is what Isaiah is talking about. Again, he says, In that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing streams of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So this is a picture of God's last day. When the Lord comes at his second coming, there are those who God's wrath will be poured out on. That's why he says his threshing he will start his threshing from the flowing streams of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Basically, from one end of the world to the other. God's going to bring down judgment on those who have refused to follow after him. But then I like what it says at the end of that verse. And you will be gathered up one by one, sons of Israel. Sounds kind of personal. God's going to grab his people. He knows who his people are. He's going to grab them. He's going to protect them and keep them from the wrath that's coming upon this world. He gathers them up one by one. And on that final day, God will deem those who have died, who are those who have already passed, and those who are scattered throughout the world. That's the picture as well here in verse 13. Those who are perishing in the land of Assyria. I think it's a reference to those who have already died and have gone. God's going to redeem those first, as we learn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then he's going to gather the rest of us. He's going to gather all those so that we will worship the Lord together in the eternal city. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24. Turn there with me. And we're going to, we'll close in, in this section here. Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. Here's kind of, this is an explanation of Isaiah 
verses 12 and 13 that we just read. Matthew 24, starting in verse 29, you'll hear similar language. He says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then a sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And here's the key verse. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, just like Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 27. A great trumpet, and they will look what they'll do. They'll gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So this is a picture of the Lord's second coming, and he's gathering his people from all over the world, those who have died and those who are yet alive, and he gathers them together. And so that's the picture that Isaiah has given us here in Isaiah 27. Again, those four points I want you to remember that God's divine plan is that he is going to destroy Satan. Finally, the, all the chaos in this world will be gone. And God has a plan of salvation for his people. And he has a plan even in his discipline for this world. And finally, he has a, a plan of a victorious salvation in his second coming. So what does that mean to each and every one of us? I think we can have some points of application in regards to all those. And the first one is this. Number one, we should rejoice that the great Leviathan, the serpent, the Satan will ultimately be defeated. Again, all of evil, all that evil that we experience today will finally be gone. God's going to destroy it. And that's our future. It's not just a hope, it's an assurance. So we should rejoice in that. Secondly, rejoice in the salvation of God, that God has given us salvation. Each and every one of us who receives him, there's salvation, and he's going to be our keeper. Again, going back to those descriptions in Isaiah, think of God. God is going to satisfy every thirst for all eternity. We'll no longer have any need of anything. Just being ultimately satisfied with whatever he has for us. And I don't know what that is, but Scripture promises that you know, there's no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. So whatever it is, it's going to be good. Thirdly, we need to, as believers, receive the Lord's discipline. This is God's warning to each and every one of us when he disciplines us, and we should repent. So I would encourage those of you this morning that are hearing God's word and are convicted by it, that you would heed God's discipline and repent, that you would not push it away or wait another day because you never know what's going to happen in this world. And fourth and finally, let's eagerly await his return. Again, in Matthew 24, at the end of this that I just read a few minutes ago, in verse 42, this is what Jesus says at telling his disciples that one day he's going to come back and what they should do. Look at what he says in verse 42. He says, Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So eagerly waiting for God means that we need to be ready for it. He can return at any moment. And so that's, again, I want to just reiterate those four points of application. Rejoice that Satan is defeated. Rejoice in the salvation that God has given you. Receive the Lord's discipline and repent. And then fourth and finally, let's eagerly await his return and pray that he would come soon. Let's close in prayer.
Lord God, thank you so much once again for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have a divine plan. That in the midst of a chaotic world and sometimes a, a world that doesn't make sense and it looks like what's wrong is called right and what's evil is called good. We know that you are Lord and sovereign over all these things and that nobody can disrupt your plan. And I pray that each and every one of us would trust in that and believe in that and cling to you as we eagerly wait for your return. And Lord, I pray also for those this morning who do not yet trust in you and who are maybe doubting that you have a divine plan. I pray this morning that you would convict them that in your discipline they would return or they would repent and come to you, Lord God, so that they might know and understand your divine plan and trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.